When I first started interviewing, I was 23 years old. By Indian standards, I should have been married. I wasn't. So the first couple of questions everyone would always ask me were, woman, are you going to get married? So I think my biggest challenge at that point was to try and convince people that I wasn't, right? that, that I was passionate about the work that I was doing. Hey there, I'm Mark Minner of First Person Advisors. Welcome to Human Resolve, the podcast designed for the unsung heroes of the workplace, HR professionals like you. Each time we gather, we cover the highs and the lows, hits and misses, and everything in between. Be back on our third episode of Human Resolve alongside my colleague Megan Nail, who is First Person's Vice President of Total Rewards for this third episode. I'm Mark Minner, President at First Person, and we are delighted to welcome in a friend and a great HR leader in the community, uh, Ashima Kapoor, Vice President of Human Resources and Allied Solutions. Ashima, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I know podcasting isn't necessarily in your LinkedIn bio, but uh, it's going to be a fun conversation today. Let's start first with this. Human Resources 2020, you get a little taste of all of the skills you've learned over your career and then some you never knew you'd have. What has this year been like for you? I don't even know what first word comes to mind. Challenging, <laughs> but interesting also. I mean, I think we've learned a lot. I think the biggest thing that we've learned is how people can come together. It doesn't matter where we are, companies, departments, and the fact that ultimately, especially for us as an organization, life can throw a challenge at you and you can figure out how to work through it. When you think about how this moment has come about and how you've been prepared to handle this moment, what are some of the things, when we talk to folks, empathy, like just you know the relational side of, human side of human resources has been such an important part. Folks are challenged with balancing personal priorities, professional priorities. There's a collision now at home, people working there, and also just the idea that every employee is dealing with their own life challenges. It might be health and safety, might be kids at home, what relationships, whatever the case may be. How do you work with your experience and also with your managers to be able to try and bring that human side to it? You know, I think that was a little bit easier for us. I want to say we as an organization are very family oriented to begin with. And we have a lot of employees that work remote. So we were not, the concept of working from home was not completely foreign to us. We're a flexible organization. So our employees, even though they come to the office and we have an office environment, could work from home certain times. I mean, I'll never forget the fact, I, I still remember we were actually on spring break, 13th March, when everything started to kind of like melt down, it seemed like. And so I was sitting in Florida on the beach with a laptop with me. And within a day, we'd figured out how everyone was going to be able to go back home and work from home. It took us no more than a day or so to get 80% of our population back home, working from home. It probably took us another couple of weeks to make sure that everyone else had the equipment and the resources they needed to be able to work from home. We had a very small population that was still coming to the office, but that was because the work they did was not really something that they could do from home. We've always had a recognition for the fact that people have lives outside of the, the four walls of the office or the, the environment. And we've always been very open to working with employees on that. Managers have always known 
we all have lives. I, as a manager, have a life. So I know that my employees have a life too. So I think that for us, at least I believe as an organization was, was easy. What was the biggest takeaway you had? What was the most impressive thing you saw in the organization from the team as a result of 2020? What was something that you were in, that inspired you from the organization? The resolve. I mean, yeah. it, it kind of goes through the human resolve, but the resolve, the fact, again, that we were able to move people to work from home within a day. You know, that included people being able to take their equipment home, dual monitors, whatever else it might have been, setting up their phones. So our enterprise technology team did a great job of being able to do that. Managers did a great, jo- a great job of being able to do that. The leadership was on board. I mean, you know, nobody had to think twice and say, well, wait, should we do that? Should we not do that? It was instant. It was like, yeah, we're, everyone's moving back home and that's what we're going to do. I think the fact that people continue to do the work that needed to get done. We, we've all experienced the fact that some things just get done better in the office maybe. But getting done what needed to get done, getting the job done, I think everyone was focused on that. And that's what's been great. Let's get to know you a little bit better. Let's go back to the beginning. You did not grow up in the United States, grew up in India. And here you are leading HR for a very large organization, a very successful organization. I assume when you were growing up, this is not necessarily what you thought you'd be doing. But take us back to those roots in India. What was it like growing up there? What was the family dynamic like? What was the cultural dynamic like? My dad's an engineer. My mom, well, retired now. My mom was a political science professor. So I think I was one of the fortunate few that came from a family that emphasized education, especially for women. I was the only one in my family, woman outside of my mom, that worked outside of the house when I grew up. One of the things that my mom always said to me and to my sister was long term, it doesn't matter if you decide to work or not, but you always need to make sure that you are capable of taking care of yourself. You need to be independent. So I've always appreciated the fact that the way we were raised allowed us that independence of thought and we were taught to, to take care of ourselves. How did I end up in HR? (laughs) It was believed that as a woman, even though I was going to go do my master's and everything else, right, I needed to make sure that I could take care of myself. I needed to find a profession that was conducive to a woman in India because you're a either you're a housewife or you're working, but you must come back home at two o'clock when the kids come back from school, you know, whatever else it might be. So the professions were going to get limited in terms of you could teach, you could do a few other things because there was no concept of work from home, especially in India at that point. It was decided, I knew that I was going to do home science. And just as I was getting ready to get into my bachelor's program, psychology had become a very popular field in India. So I laugh about this because my mom thought I should try psychology because it was an up and coming field and it would be great. And she was a professor. So, you know, so she was kind of passionate about that. My dad believed that I should do home science because it was a well-developed field. I knew what the path was going to be. So ultimately, my mom and dad had an argument. My mom won. I went into psychology. (laughs) (laughs) Let's expand. Uh, There's a a lot to dissect there. One of the things I want to go back to is this idea that as a woman, what you felt like growing up, your opportunities were, and how you, you talked about that being so limited in terms of the scope. H- how did you find a way to break through that? And how has that shaped, you know, kind of the obstacles you've had to overcome in terms of the perception of what 
your, your career path could be or would be? How has that helped shape your career? I know I was the fortunate one that my parents were not set in the old thoughts. Like I said, my mom, even though she herself was a woman who grew up in India, grew up in a family, right? So my family was very supportive of the fact that you need to go out and you need to learn and you need to expand. There were girls that were going to schools and colleges and stuff. But again, the idea was you finish your education, you get married, and then you settle down. And then if you want, you can do something, you can do part-time or whatever else stuff. But most of the times, you're a housewife. I was very fortunate that my parents pushed us. I was very fortunate that the discipline that we were given was you do your best in whatever you do. It's not about being the best at everything. It's about recognizing what you're good at and being passionate about that, right? So passion for me is a big word. To me, I don't know that I had to fight as much growing up because my mom and dad paved that path for me and they probably fought the battles more than I had to. Then when I got into the work environment, you know, I think some of the experiences were probably no different than what others would have. Now, India at that point, and I don't know how it's changed, but India at that point was also a country where you could ask questions like, do, do you plan on having a family, et cetera? So when I first started interviewing, I was 23 years old. By Indian standards, I should have been married. I wasn't. So the first couple of questions everyone would always ask me were, well, when are you going to get married? You know, mm-hmm. will that affect your career in any way? Are you going to stop working? Because we want somebody that's going to be here long enough. So I think my biggest challenge at that point was to try and convince people that I wasn't, right? that, that I was passionate about the work that I was doing. So fast forward to, you know, I started working, got married. My husband's a professor at IU School of Medicine, came here. And I think my husband's always been very supportive of you follow your dreams. You do what you want to do. Have I had experiences and battles? Yes. But I mean, I feel like I'm fortunate because people that were close to me and surrounded me, I never really had to battle them to find or pave a path. They've helped me pave that path. When we chatted, Ashma, it was you talking about coming to the United States and some of the early jobs you had and some of the challenges trying to fit in and trying to find your voice in, in all of that change. How difficult of an experience was that? It was difficult. It was interesting. When I came to the U.S., I wanted to get into HR. And I think the first thing that I realized was nobody was going to hire me into HR because they didn't think I knew anything about the laws or the rules or the regulations here. What I needed to do was go get my PHR and SPHR because I felt like that helped put a stamp on my resume that, yes, I'm familiar with some stuff. So, but it still took me it took me a while. And then Morley Group, Sharon and Mike Morley, they had a search firm. They were the first people to hire me. They believed that I could do what needed to get done. It was a search firm. So for the first seven, eight months, I did cold calling, hated it. <laughs> but Mike and Sharon believed in me. They supported me. I still remember enough times when I would pick up the phone and call. I would call a company because I was trying to get them to hire us for whatever work we needed to do, hire us for for finding them a candidate. And people would hang up. The moment I said my name, people would hang up. And there were some times when people would say something rude to me, you know, who are you and what are you selling or whatever else it was. But I also believe that for every single person that might have been negative, that might have discriminated or been mean, I found three or four other people that were very supportive, that were willing to hold my hand and 
teach me the ropes. I think that's the phrase, right? Yeah. 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 How does that play? How does that experience play into now being a vice president of a very large organization in in HR and the emphasis on DE&I and that equity piece that I know is really important. How has your experience played a role in terms of how you talk about that with the team and how you, you lead the organization from a DE&I perspective? So I think a couple of things that have helped me are I've done that. I'm not just sitting there talking about, oh, we should do this. It's not all hypothetical. I can gain from my own experiences. But what that, that has also taught me is that not everyone's experience is the same. So I have to be very careful in going in and not saying, well, because it is how this was for me, therefore it is this for you. And that opens up the dialogue to here's how I think, what do you think? What's your experience? And now let's bring something together to how are we going to build whatever we're going to build. I mean, my big thing, and you know, this used to be my pet peeve, and I think everyone around me knows this now, I want to be known for the work I do. I want to be known for the the quality of things, whatever that might be. I don't want to be known for, oh, because you're a woman or because you're a pretty face or whatever else stuff, right? So value the work that is being done. Don't worry about what the person that's doing the work looks like. To me, I think that's a very important message. Again, I've been surrounded by people that have seen that in me, that I know see that in other people too. And if we're all focused on the work we're doing and doing good work overall, I think everything else becomes secondary then. And this year, more than maybe any other year, the role of the manager has been elevated throughout organizations, right? One of the interesting things I would think for somebody who has that deep psychology experience, a behavioral psychology experience, is you, you see something and you want to go address it. You got an organization of thousands of people. You, you can't go in and, and just address it with every employee. You're relying on that, that manager level throughout the organization to be able to do that. When you've seen great managers and you've seen average managers, in your experience, what has helped people become great managers? What's taken them on that journey? What are those things that you look at and you try and instill in other folks based on your experience? I think it's the development, right? I mean, I believe that ultimately we all want to do a good job. I can't think of a single person that's walked in and said, you know what, I really don't care. I'm going to do whatever. Everyone wants to do a good job. It's a matter of... I firmly believe in four things. I call it the three C's and one E, the capability, the commitment, the clarity, and then empowerment. The first thing is, are the people capable? Managers, are they capable? If they're not capable, can you train them? Yeah, there are some things that just come to you innately, but I think capability is a big focus there. Are they committed? But that's kind of where I talk about passion very frequently. Are they clear on what's expected? And then ultimately, are they empowered? And if we can do those things, with the managers, if we can focus on any one of those things and work with them on where they might need help, I think most of the times we can get to what we need to get to. That clarity piece you're describing, I know that one of the big things that you talk about is that mind space component around communication, right? The role of communicating has been put in an even bigger spotlight this year with the geographic diversity of folks, people working at home, different methods of technology that they're communicating with. How do you feel like the role of an HR leader or, or an organization in terms of competing with that mind space for an employee? How, how do you try and maximize the communication efforts? I think it's the communication and education. So the word mind space I use very frequently with my team, right? Ultimately, we are there to help the human resource. We all say, the every organization say our most valuable resource is the humans, that the people that we have there. 
And how do you then make sure that every day that an employee walks in, you're going to be able to get the best from them? You can't do that every day. So to me, Mindspace becomes important, right? We live and breathe HR. My team lives and breathes HR. That's what we went to school for or whatever else we did. Not everyone else thinks that way. Now, again, I believe that people in general want to do a good job, but they're not thinking from the perspective of the, the, the human resources every day. What they know is I have to get this accounting thing filed. Right? So their brain, their mind space is filled with whatever the accounting pieces are. How do you then get them to pause long enough and also think of that human aspect? And that's kind of where I think the training, the education, the development, all of those things become important to make sure that whenever they're doing something, they can pause long enough and say, how am I doing it? Is, is this the right way to do it? Ultimately, the question I ask everyone is, if you were in that person's shoes, how would you like to be treated? Would you like somebody to come up to you and say, hey, look, I've been watching you for two months. You haven't been doing your job. And, you know, now you're out. Or would you like somebody to come to you during those two months and say, have you tried this? Can I help you? Can I give you this resource? And if you've tried everything, then if the outcome still turned out to be that the person has to leave, okay, we, we can then say we've tried everything that we need. Megan Neal, I'll ask you this as uh, your role, not only vice president of total rewards and compensation on our team, but you're also the state director for HR Indiana for the the Sherm organization. You've had a a wide array of experiences in HR. It's interesting, the HR role and the HR leader role has always been continuing to grow in terms of the impact on the business. This year, it's kind of been like thrust into the spotlight. And a lot of times you're looking over your shoulder and a lot of the stuff that Ashima is saying, like, okay, we need to solve this. We need to actually deal with our people. We need that human side. We need to help folks be resilient this year. How have you seen that transformation of the HR leader in a year like this? Yeah, I think this year more than any other, it's been that balance between the macro impact on the organization or the business and then the micro impact on each employee's everyday life. And I think as HR professionals, we've always been in that balance, but this year it's just been elevated just thinking about making those tough decisions on staffing reductions, staffing increases, all kinds of different ways in the viability of organizations, but also getting down to the individual level on how each individual is dealing with this and working with your managers like Ashima shared to have those important conversations. And those important conversations have been over a wide array of topics this year. They are not the topics that you necessarily went to school to learn about what we're going to be dealing with every day. We're talking about deals of racial justice. We're talking about deals of health and safety in terms of COVID in the workplace, your mental health, resiliency, and these types of topics, which are go so far beyond what you would normally see in a job description and deal with people on such a personal level. How is it that HR leaders that might be listening to this how should they feel positioned? Man, I, I didn't think I was going to be the one that everybody was going to look at to have all these answers. Now I have to be, how, how do I make sure I'm doing the right job for my team? Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's a really tough one. I always go back to listening because we are not going to have all the answers. We have a lot of answers in HR and a lot of resources, but I think really listening and then taking a step back and identifying what those trends are and looking for solutions that will work. You're never gonna find a magic solution that's going to work for everyone, but just really having those thoughtful conversations. I think what people are really craving is connection, especially this year, a relationship, a trusted relationship and a connection. 
I think managers are the first line on that. And so having that dialogue, but then as HR, we need to be there to help prop up our managers and have that direct line with employees to support our leaders too. You spend a lot of time thinking about the total reward of working, the value proposition of working at a company. How have you seen employers' mindset change or maybe stay the same throughout this year when it comes to the value proposition of, of attracting, retaining talent? No, it's a great question. And we've seen through surveys that have been conducted that what employees are looking for this year is different than what they have been in the past. There are commonalities. Of course, you have compensation as a foundation, but benefits have even taken on a more primary role in job security and thinking about, again, the tools that are provided and those relationships in the workplace. So now I think has been a big year for us to all reassess, maybe personally and within our organizations, kind of how we're supporting each other and what we're offering. Ashima, I'd ask you this question. You know, Megan talked about the fact that we really want to listen. We want to listen effectively this year when we, when we do that. One of the things I, I wonder about for you personally, with all of the things that have landed on your plate this year, has there been a moment where you've said, what am I doing? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? Oh my gosh, they're looking at me. They're asking me these questions. Have you had any of those moments? Every day. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It kind of goes back to no one size fits all. You want to make sure that you're taking care of as many and all if you can. Every single thought, every single decision you make, you have to pause and say, am I doing this right? And that's kind of where I agree with what Megan said. Listening and partnership become the most important things, right? So none of us can do this in silos. We have to rely on each other. We have to rely on the resources we have. So I appreciate the partnerships, I, not just with our outside partners, but even internally with the managers, with our other leaders, because it's those partnerships and those resources that get us to the right decisions overall. You think about your background, husband, father, engineering, science space. Obviously, data is not a conversation that ever comes up in your, in your household. I don't know what data is. Yeah, never talked about facts or anything like that. But when you think about this year and you think about being a big advocate of using data in decision-making, data to, to drive decision-making, how do you balance the hard data and the quantitative insights that you gain either through your employee base or through what's happening on a more macro level in the world with the qualitative experiences of what people are going through and the stories that you're hearing and the anecdotal stuff. How do you personally view that philosophy, your philosophy around that art and science component to making decisions about what the future holds in an uncertain coming months and and years? That balance can be hard sometimes, right? Because sometimes you can be so prone to just looking at the data that you want to just do something and you have to remind yourself that, no, I need to also look at the softer side. So it's great to, again, have partners and teams that will sometimes say, well, okay, you looked at those five things, but have you looked at this also, right? So for me, it's great to have a team that kind of uses their left side of the brain and the right side of the brain both. So you kind of balance the quantitative and the qualitative. Some of it is, I think, years of experience. You grow up in HR. There's enough things that are completely data-driven, and there are enough things that are all qualitative data. So you learn to also then take those anecdotal things and create some kind of data or pattern out of it. 
there's enough qualitative things that, well, employee relations, there's enough qualitative things that happen there. But at the end of that, you can still kind of say, we did this this way five times and it didn't work or it worked great. Or we've done it this way with this, you know, as we talk about people's styles, ultimately all of those things can be factored into anything that we're doing. When you think about your time at Allied and the, and the growth that you've experienced there and the work that you've had, how has data influenced the growth that you've been able to contribute to? How, how do you use data in a, in a real life example for the company? I'm a firm believer that whatever gets measured gets fixed or gets improved or whatever other word you want to use. When I first started with Allied, the journey started with probably being more of a personnel department. I mean, we were like, you know, the, the office show that everyone talk about, go file this paper, go do this. Or what we were trying to do was create a seat at the table. And that's where you can talk a lot conceptually of all the things that can be done or how I can make this better. But what you really have to do is show how you've made it better. And the only way to show a lot of times is the data. So even though we may have been doing some qualitative things like training the manager where you can't really see the value ultimately until the manager starts to use that concept somewhere, but you can translate that into quantitative data on because we did this, therefore the turnover has reduced or because we did this, therefore the quality of hire has improved. And I think that journey has been very interesting to get us to work. I mean, you know, we have a seat at the table now. We have a team that is valued. We have managers that pick up the phone and call and ask my team for thoughts and ideas, which I know we didn't have so many years ago. There's a funny story I talk about always. When I first started, one of the first things I, I made a recommendation was that when we do salary increases, we should have HR review it or approve it. There was a lot of pushback because what do you mean HR has to approve? I mean, it's my budget. I can do <laughs> right. So, so I had to go back and kind of say, it's not about approval. It's about that review to make sure that we're doing the right thing, that we're a pay for performance culture. The concept of pay for performance was new also, but got a lot of pushback. So I was like, okay, fine. Let's just take baby steps. So as long as before you give an increase that we can review it and we can have a conversation, that's great. Right. So we got to that. And then a year or two years into it, we were looking at some data. I'd started to pull data together on our average increases within the organization, what our average ratings were, et cetera, et cetera, and how much money we were spending at any given time on all of these increases that we're giving. And I'll never forget sitting together with like a couple of leadership people. And one of them looked at me and said, and why is it that you don't approve all of the increases that go through? <laughs> so, you know, but that kind of goes to the patience that I talk about, right? So if you're passionate about stuff, the mind space we talked about earlier too, not everyone's thinking the way you're thinking right away. And how do you get them to that spot? Sometimes you need enough time and you have to persevere to get to what you need to get to. So is it fair to say then that to be able to get a seat at the table, you had to first understand what the table needed to hear or the way in which the table needed to hear that information? I think my biggest learning lesson was I walked in and I know I'm good at what I do, right? So I walked in as an expert, just like anybody else walks in. And I walk in with the notion that I, when I say something, you all listen. But that's the biggest mistake you can make. If you start talking without listening to what everyone else has to say, because then all you're doing is talking from what you think, not talking from what they might need or want. 
So it's important to listen, understand, right? Which is why we talk about business partners, which is why we talk about building that trust and uh, credibility. The only way I can build that trust and credibility is when everyone that's talking to me feels like I'm listening to them. That's the key. I would ask this question to both of you, but Ashima, we'll, we'll start first. And just thinking about as there might be a young HR leader out there or a young leader out there who thinks they might want to go to HR and they're, they're on their you know, early phase of their career. As you look back, has there been advice? Has there been something that you've received that you've always in your professional career, it doesn't have to be HR related or just, just as a professional? that you look back on and has been influential in one way, shape, or form? I'm sure there's been several things that you've gotten feedback on, but is there something that you can think of that's made an impact on your life? I think the two big big things. One is be passionate about whatever you're going to do. Because if you're not passionate about what you're going to do, sooner or later, it just becomes a job. It stops being fun. So to me, the three words I use very frequently are passion, patience, and perseverance, right? Because you don't get everything right away. Sometimes you just have to work towards it. The other thing that I will say that my parents had said to me when I was growing up was, you don't ha- always have to look for a role model. You don't have to stop and say, I need to find someone else that looks like me or feels like me to be doing X, Y, Z for me to do that. If you have that passion and you have that drive, then believe that you can do anything that you want to do. You don't need one of you to be doing that before you can do it. You could be the first one. I was the first one in my family to go out and start. Well, my mom was, but in my generation, I was the first one to go out and start working. Have you been able to help people along on that journey as well that you've met? I hope so. I really hope so. Well, people tell me I have been able to, but I I hope that that continues to be the case. It's got to be one of the more enjoyable things about what you get to do and get to make an impact on. Absolutely. You know, it's always exciting to see yourself grow, but it's even more exciting to see somebody else grow and you've played a role in their life. Megan, I would ask you the same question. Has there been something that over the course of your career that's that's really stood out to you? I would actually, in a different vein of what Ashima just shared, say the same thing about hesitation. The advice I received was really don't hesitate to take on something new, even if you don't completely know how you're going to do it. So you get approached for a project or a new responsibility or working with a new leader. Sometimes our natural hesitation is, I'm not sure, I've never done something like that before, but don't be afraid to jump in. And then when you complete it, take time to really stop and reflect and look at what you learned and how it can be applied to different areas. So kind of thinking about things holistically and what skills or experience you had and how you can apply those to different things in the future. What do you say to an HR leader that is uncertain about the future right now and comes to you and says, I don't know what I should be doing. I don't know what more I should be. What what would your advice be to somebody today? Yeah, my advice would be look at kind of listening to your audience, as Ashma also said, and look and see what they need and then how you can meet that in different ways. And not being afraid to step up. I know um, sometimes in a down economy, if you're a recruiter, you might need to take on some different responsibilities or look at different things. And not being afraid to lean into that and really look at what opportunities are in front of you and how you can use the skills and talents that you have to bring value to them. And you've talked a lot about that too in your career, just the wide array of experiences you've been able to have and how you don't even know when the parallels are going to come back and you're going to be able to recall something you did five, 10 years ago. And it's like, oh, I remember that experience and how it impacts me now. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think looking back, one of my most formative experiences as a professional in general was working for an accounting firm because I reported up to the business unit. So I was reporting to accountants, not to HR at that time. And accountants think in Excel. So that was really when I learned about data and how to present that data, because that was my audience's expectation of what I was bringing forward. And, you know, fast forward 10 plus years later, I'm doing compensation. And a lot of that was because I had that interest developed early in really that accounting experience. Ashima, I'll ask you one one last thought here as we, we think about what internal struggles professionals might have this year, this idea of capacity, creating capacity for yourself, finding ways to kick into that next gear and figure out what to shed, what to keep, how do you manage through that? How have you been able to create capacity for yourself through the evolution of your career and how do you coach others through that? I think capacity was easier. Maybe again, I go back to passion. When you like something you do, you figure out ways to do it. But you also have to be patient with yourself. You cannot learn everything in a day. One of the biggest lessons that I learned was it's okay to say, I don't know. We have a very strong need to always come across as I know everything. And I found my life become 10 times easier because I was willing to go to the table and say, I don't know. Tell me what you're talking about. Teach me more. And I think once you are willing to do that to yourself, you realize that you don't have to learn all the tricks in a day, in a year, in a whatever time frame it might be. It'll come to you as you go through experiences. But the biggest thing is keep yourself open to those experiences. If you close the door to an experience, you will never learn. My grandmother always said, you learn something new every day. Your education never stops. If you're open to learning something every day, it doesn't matter if it's the smallest nugget you learn, you learn something new. Ashima Kapoor, Vice President of Human Resources at Allied Solutions. Thank you so much Thank you. for sharing your story and your perspective. And Megan Nail, our Vice President at First Person of Total Rewards and Compensation. We appreciate your time as always. And thanks so much for listening to this episode, the third episode of Human Resolve. Thanks so much for learning with us today. Did you enjoy the episode? Please share it along with someone you think would appreciate it. Subscribe and stay ahead of the curve with notifications of new episodes. Join the conversation and let us know what you think by tagging FirstPersonBA and using hashtag HumanResolve on social media. <laughs>